Well, good morning. My name is Zach. I'm one of the shepherds here on staff. Um, I'm so blessed to be here with us today as we're continuing this series. If you've uh, been with our church for a little bit, you've known that we have been doing about a year and a half study through the book of Genesis that just concluded a few weeks ago. And then last Sunday, Darren got up here and told all of us to turn to Genesis chapter one and chapter two. And you probably sat in your seat wondering, oh man, did we like not do it well enough? We got to, we got to do this again. But we are not doing just a study in Genesis, but a study looking at the entire Bible, looking at what we're calling the big picture, trying to gain an understanding of what's the grand story, what's the whole narrative of our scriptures. If we had to be able to explain what it's all about, why we care about our Bibles, why we care about what it says, how would we do that? And so these, these four weeks are trying to answer that question, what's the big picture of the Bible? As Darren said last week, um, we can often miss the forest for the trees. You know, for many of us, we read our Bibles, one chapter, one passage, one verse at a time, really sitting on it and meditating on it. And that is so good and so fruitful, but it can also be so useful to step back and see what's the big picture. How does this fit into everything? And as I've been thinking about uh, this idea of the big picture and, and trying to understand the whole story of the Bible, I was thinking of other great stories that I love, other great stories that I care about, and ways in which they've been summarized. There was a trend on Twitter, this was years ago, um, it was movie plots explained badly. <laughs> and it was people taking famous movies and trying to give a really short summary of the entire movie in kind of a ways that make you chuckle and feel like, well, I, yeah, that is true, but that's not really, you know, it's missing the point. Here's a couple examples. Uh, this one says the movie is about a group that spends nine hours returning a piece of jewelry. Any guesses? Lord of the Rings. <laughs> this one is uh, the movie is a series of naps. Inception. <laughs> and this last one, this one I love. A father reunites with his long lost son and wants him to take over the family business. Any guesses? Star Wars, yes, yeah, Star Wars Episode Five: Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> These are funny. We laugh at them because they're technically true, right? I mean, Lord of the Rings is about a group that is trying to return a piece of jewelry. Star Wars is about a father and a long-lost son. But if we love these stories, these are some of my favorite stories. We, we cringe a little. We start to be like, no, 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 there's so much more. There's so much more to the story, right? When we try to describe the big picture of our Bible, a lot of times it might feel like uh, these movie plots explain badly where there's so much, our Bible is massive. It's a huge book and trying to explain it all can take quite some time. And there's been some attempts. And what I want to do today is show that, that what we're looking at in today's sermon often gets missed when we explain the big story of our Bible. Today, what we're looking at is... Genesis chapter 3 to Malachi. That's 927 chapters of our Bible. So just know Darren did two chapters last week. I'm doing 927. But it is a huge part of our Bible. It's the whole rest of what we call the Old Testament. And a lot of times it gets missed when we explain the story of our Bible. It's as though we tried to tell people the Lord of the Rings is about people returning a piece of jewelry. And we're like, no, there's so many other storylines and themes and important 
um, ideas within the book. It's so much more than a piece of jewelry. A lot of times, hearing the big picture of our Bible misses this, this huge chunk of our Bible. Sometimes we don't know where to put it. One of the common ways to explain the story of our Bible goes like this. It starts with creation, which is what we looked at last week. Verse, chapters 1 and 2, God creates a world. It's good. It's beautiful. And he places human beings within it uh, to, to rule and reign on his behalf, to be fruitful and multiply. Take this world that God has made and do something amazing with it, all under the authority of God and what he cares about. And then we get to the fall, which is Genesis chapter 3, where the humans disobey God. They want to decide for themselves what's good and what's evil. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, reject God's authority. And in doing so, they invite sin and death and evil and violence into our world. So it presents the problem. This is the problem, the fall. And a lot of times within this model, we go creation, fall, Jesus, (laughs) redemption, Creation, fall, redemption, jumping all the way. And then so God's solution to the fall is Jesus. He sends his son, he dies on the cross, he raises from the dead, he ascends to the throne, and that's redemption. And then the last portion is restoration. God comes back, restoration, new heavens, new earth, resurrection. And that's a good model, right? It's, it's, the, it's technically true. Our Bible does tell a story of creation, fall, Jesus, redemption, and restoration. But a lot of times in explaining that, it misses these 927 chapters that are there for a reason, that I think are a part of that word redemption, but often we forget that there's a whole story here of God moving and working with people. And that's what I want to look at today. And I recognize covering the whole Testament one sermon is, is, is going to be difficult, And part of it is that our experience with the Old Testament may vary. For some of us, the Old Testament may feel confusing, feel so foreign. It's it's literally an ancient text from a part of the world that is so different than ours, from a time period way different than ours. A lot of the stories are, they're violent, they're confusing, they're conflicting for some of us. Or experience with the Old Testament is just a grab bag of random stories about David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den, and none of it feels connected. So my hope today is that we can see the big picture of the Old Testament, see God's movement within it, so that we would feel more confident in opening our Old Testament, knowing what it's about, its place in the redemptive story, and have a good foundation as we approach it. And so what I'm going to do today is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to look at three major movements in the Old Testament that I think are going to kind of summarize the whole thing. They're alliterations, so they'll be easier to memorize. And then within each of those movements, I want to look at either an obstacle or a misunderstanding that we may have when it comes to the Old Testament. And hopefully do some reworking so that we have a better understanding. We can remove those obstacles so that, again, we are confident when we open our Old Testament, that we see the stories for what they're really trying to do and not fit into a box that we want them to fit inside. So that's our goal today, and we're going to do it in 30 minutes. 
So the story, I'm going to kind of summarize us from here. So we, as we said, we have creation. As Darren said last week, this is the idea of perfect oneness. God is one with his creation. He's one with us. And we as humans are at oneness with each other. We're united. We're together. We've got a mission, a vocation, rule and reign, be fruitful, multiply. But because of Genesis 3, because humans reject God's plan and his authority, Sin, evil, wickedness enters the world. And we follow these stories. If you remember, I know it was a year and a half ago. But those early portions of Genesis where we start to see violence and brothers killing brothers and a character, you know, bragging about how many people he's killed. And it starts getting awful and wicked. Eventually God has to hit the reset button with the flood. And after that story, God again, he has this desire to work with and through humans. For some reason, God cares about us. (laughs) For some reason, he wants to partner with us and work with us. God does not, he never abandons that plan. And while it failed with Adam and Eve, God calls a character named Abram, who later becomes known as Abraham. And he chooses them and he says, hey, through your family, I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to bring salvation when you unite us back together, God and man and man and man back together through Abraham's family. He was chosen for this vocation, for a role. In the later parts of Genesis, which are maybe a little bit more fresh in our mind, trace the growing pains of this family as they try to take on this vocation. Most of the time, not doing a great job. A few little, few little glimmers of hope, right? few little moments where they do something good and are a blessing to the people around them. And the book of Genesis ends and we get to this next, the, the first major movement the Old Testament wants us to look at today, and that's Exodus. So if you're taking notes, that's your first one, Exodus. So yes, these will all start with the letter E. The book of Exodus opens and we've seen that the, this family of Abraham has become fruitful, multiplied. They've gotten bigger. They're doing exactly what God has told them to do. They're growing in influence in the land of Egypt. But a Pharaoh comes along, a new king, and he doesn't know the story of this family. He just sees them as a threat, right? Again, we're seeing that that idea of otherness, of of looking at other people as threats, as disconnected, as uh, disjointed with one another. That we're not connected And we see this here in the story with the Pharaoh looking at other humans who are being fruitful, multiplying, and sees it as a threat, not a blessing. And so he enslaves God's people, starts persecuting them, putting their their baby boys to death. And this group that is supposed to be the vehicle of blessing to the world is now enslaved and persecuted. And they cry out to their God. The story of Exodus traces this this amazing moment where God steps in and rescues and frees his people. Takes them out of the land of Egypt. Probably you know this story, right? They get to the sea and God splits it wide open for them to walk through safely. They're freed. They're saved. And this, this story, the Exodus... It's really not just another story in the Old Testament. It is so foundational to the Israelites and their faith and their understanding of God. I didn't just select it because it's the next book after Genesis, but because it's the story that captures the character of God and understanding of who he is. 
that he steps in and frees and saves his people. And this gets us to what I think is our first obstacle or misunderstanding of the Old Testament. That often we don't see God the same in the Old as we see him in the New Testament. Uh, I, I remember a few um, back when I was a sophomore at Biola, I worked at Disneyland, and uh, um, I'd become friends with a with a with a guy that we both worked on the Nemo submarines together, and his name was Ronnie, and Ronnie was he was not a not a believer, not a Christian. Um, but one day after we were done driving our submarines, we had gotten on the bus and we were headed back to the parking lot. It was after work. And at that time, I was at Biola, and I was taking a class on the Old Testament. It's where my love for the Old Testament started to grow. And I had a big paper due that night that I was working on, and, and Ronnie asked me on the bus. He said, you know, what do you got going on tonight? And I told him, I'm working on this big paper on the Old Testament. He looked at me, and he said, oh, isn't that when God was, like, super angry and super mean? Isn't that that's what the Old Testament is? And it makes me so sad, like, that's his perception of the Old Testament and God in the Old Testament. And this is from someone who wouldn't claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And I wonder for how many of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus would sit there and say, I kind of think the same thing. I look at the Old Testament and God does seem angry and mean inside of it. It seems like he really cares about rules and following the law and he's always upset. We often pit the two, the Old Testament God, the New Testament God. But one thing I want us to remove is that language. God is the same. He's consistent. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the one of the New Testament. I think this is so important. I think think one of the uh, misunderstandings we have when it comes to the Old Testament is we've pitted the two against each other. Uh, One of the things I think that happened in history was when the Reformation happened, there was this emphasis on grace, which is so good. I'm so thankful for the Reformation. But one of the things that happened was the Reformers, as they looked at their situation with the church and saw that the church was emphasizing what we might call works righteousness, do these things, follow these rules, and then God will save you. And the Reformers came in and said, no, that's not how it is. God, is, God has saved us by grace. We don't need to follow these rules. We don't, we don't need to do anything else. And I think one of the unfortunate things that happened was the reformers started to read their situation with the church back into the Old Testament and saw the Israelites as this like works righteousness, that they had to do these things for God's favor. They had to do these things, these works to get to heaven. And then suddenly in the New Testament, God decided, hey, what if I tried grace? What if we didn't do works righteousness? (laughs) And a lot of times that's the way we think of the two. That's something in God's character has changed here. But I'm here to tell you that, that God has always been one to step in and save his people out of grace and then call them to obedience. You and I are saved by grace in Christ and we are called to obedience. The Exodus story was a moment for God's people to look back and say God saved us from slavery And he rescued us and he freed us. And he called us his own. Now we are called to obey him. When we look at our New Testament, I think there's a reason why Jesus chose the Passover weekend for his death. The Passover was um, something the Israelites did every year. 
to recall the Exodus story. They did it every year to sit there and be reminded God rescued us. He saved us. And Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, on the night he goes before he goes to the cross, it is Passover. It's a reminder that God is not just going to save his people from the oppression of the Romans, but from the oppression of sin and death, the real enemy. That this is who God is. That the Exodus was a reminder that God rescues us and saves us. And Jesus takes it and transforms it into something greater. That God is the same. He's always been gracious, but he's always called us to obedience. He's the same God. And so at the end of Exodus, again, as the people are rescued, they are called to obedience. They are called and they're given the law. And I know it tends to be our least favorite part of reading the Bible. But it's, a, it's the picture of God's heart that he wants the people to live by this law to be the blessing to the nations. That hasn't changed. God's goal for his people hasn't changed. This is uh, from Exodus 19. Said, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God tells Moses that this is, this is what's happened. I've saved your people. They're a special possession to me. But guess what? <laughs> the whole world is mine. All the people are mine. And I want them to see that. And it's through this group, through God's people, through the Israelites, that you are going to mediate my presence, my character, on my behalf, you are a kingdom of priests. A priest mediates God's character and who he is to other people. This whole group is meant to be that. That through the law, through what the, how they treated foreigners, how they treated each other, all of that was to point towards what God wanted, to unite humans back together, to bring that oneness again. They were called to obedience. The next major moment here in the Exodus story is where we now move into our next major movement, which is going to cover a huge chunk of the Old Testament. That next one, if you're taking notes, we've got Exodus. This is Emmanuel. If you don't know what that means, that means God with us. If you're taking notes, maybe write that in parentheses so you remember what that means. Emmanuel, God with us. That God not only desires for humans to be connected once again, for his people to go and um, display his love through following the law, but God also wants to be reunited with us. He wants to be with us. And so part of the Exodus story is God um, calls a guy named Bezalel, and he gives him the Holy Spirit. And through the Spirit, he's able to create this thing called the tabernacle. And it's this giant, fancy tent where God is going to dwell and be with his people. That God wants to come and exist among them. And within the tabernacle, we get all this images of trees and garden-like stuff. 
And what it's supposed to do is as you are in the tabernacle, you are supposed to be reminded of the garden. Be reminded of what God ultimately wants to be here on this earth with us, fully present, united with us. And the tabernacle is just this microcosm of that idea. But part of the thing is that if God is going to exist among us, it's going to be difficult because there's sin and wickedness that exists in the community of God's people. So when we look at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is built, but Moses can't enter into it. Something is prohibiting him from going inside and being with God. And we go to everyone's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. (laughs) And Moses is still on the outside of the tent, but God is telling him all these directions for how the community is supposed to behave, how they're supposed to purify themselves. Because God is now existing with them, something has changed. God is now among them. They're going to have to live differently. You're going to have to live with with the view set that God is here. And we have to treat the tabernacle in that way. So all the purification laws, they're all there to just remind us of the sanctity and holy nature of God's presence among us. And after the book of Leviticus, after Moses is given all these directions, we then turn to everyone's second favorite book of the Bible, Numbers. And Moses is now inside the tent, hearing from God. And now he is able to approach him, be with him inside the tent, the tabernacle. The God is among his people, but they're going to have to purify and do these certain things to to recognize that he's there. This is special. There's a new relationship here. One of the ways the Old Testament describes uh, God's relationship with his people is through the image of marriage. Uh, especially if you read the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets, you get this picture here of, of, uh, of God as in Israel kind of in this marriage covenant. And I love that idea because for those of us who are married, you know that when you get married, your life changes, <laughs> right? I, uh, my life changed. I, my decor in my apartment changes because uh, I don't get to put up all my sports posters because they're ugly, you know. But I get a few, right? And um, and and things desperately, you know, change between planning meals. I don't get to eat at Taco Bell all the time because I've grown up and realized we have to work together as a marriage and and make an actual good meal together, right? Because God is now married to his people, because there's this covenant, things change in their life. That's what the laws are there for, to remind them there's something special and sacred about God being with them. And a part of this is God restoring what was lost in the garden. He is supposed to be their ruler, the authority. From the garden, we were supposed to look to him for our definitions of good and evil, and we rejected it and wanted our own. So if God is going to dwell with his people, it means he's going to be their king. The people did not have a king at the time. It was meant to be God, not a human, but God. But as you read the rest of the stories, you go from Joshua and then you get to Judges. And you see them trying to figure out what does it look like to exist as a group of people without our king. But God's supposed to be our king. And if you have read like a sliver of Judges you know it doesn't go well for them. They constantly fall and fail and sin 
And it gets to a point in the book of uh, 1 Samuel where the people are over it. They can't figure out what this is supposed to be like with God in charge. They want to take the easy way out. This is 1 Samuel 8. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Very rude. (laughs) Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So the people ask, they say, this, this experiment's not working out. Let's just be like the other people around us. We just want a king. But this displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And this is one of the interesting moments here in the story is as God is with his, with his people, he's supposed to be their king. They reject that. They just want to be like everyone else. God says, you know what? Let them have it. Because this is the beauty of God. He counteracts all of our moves, all of our failures. And he takes that and says, okay, I'll work with that. <laughs> I'm going to do something with this. Because the rest of the story of the Old Testament from First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles is a story of human kings trying to do the job of God. <laughs> and guess what? They do an awful job. There are little, again, little moments, right? Little moments in the story of David, little moments in the story of Solomon and Hezekiah and some of these kings, but they ultimately fail. So God uses this image to say, you want a king? Well, it's not going to be great for you. You're going to long for a good king. You're going to long for what we call the Messiah figure. For God to step in and actually be king once again. And the story traces the people as they try and try with these rulers and things don't go well. And I think this gets to our next obstacle here, our next possible misunderstanding, is that when we get to those books like First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, that we start to read this long history of kings and rulers and characters. And it starts just to feel a little like, why is this here? (laughs) Is it just for history's sake? Is there something important, inspirational here? And I think our obstacle is the way in which sometimes we approach the scriptures. A lot of the times when we think of what God is doing, his redemption, his salvation, we think so individually. My individual salvation, my individual going to heaven when I die. That's the only thing I care about. That's the only thing that God seems to care about. But when you go to the Old Testament, that's pretty absent. (laughs) No one ever asks to go to heaven. No one ever seems to care about that. No one seems to even talk about salvation in the way we think of it when we get to the Old Testament. Their conversation is so much focused on what is God doing in the present? What is God going to do for us here and now? Are you going to take care of your people? Are you going to rescue us? And the moments to which they do look towards the future, it's so focused on God fully being among his people and restoring and recreation, resurrection. So sometimes we have this focus of getting away from earth or we're so focused on individual salvation, we we get lost when we're reading the story of a group of people and they're wanting God to, to step in and do something. And their failure to live with God as king and ruler. Sometimes we're looking for application. And sometimes we just won't find it that well if we're reading 2 Kings, right? 
We have to expand our understanding that, that God is working through this long history this, this, with this group of people trying to get them to understand what he cares about. That he wants to be with them presently here. If we can remove that very focused lens of our Bible and start to expand it out to caring about what God does in the present, what God is doing here now, I think we would be able to approach our Old Testament with a greater appreciation. Now I want to move into our last and final movement here. I want to get to the verse that, we, that um, Luke read for us. Uh, it wasn't just an arbitrary picked verse. There's, there's a reason I want him to get to that. In the Isaiah 5, you, we get this beautiful picture here where Isaiah talks about his, his beloved, which is, he's talking about God, who has built this vineyard. He's taken care of it. He's, pl- he's, he's plowed the land. He's cleared the stones. He's planted it with the best vines. God has done everything he can to set this vineyard up for success. But then when he gets to it, the vineyard produces bitter grapes and not sweet grapes. And so what God does is he tears down the walls and lets the wild animals come in and wipe out and trample the vineyard. And we're told that God, we're told the explanation here of the parable, which is nice. Always nice when we get an explanation of the text within the text. Tells us that Israel is the vineyard. God's people is the vineyard. And that he expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries for violence. That God sets his people up. I'm with you. I'm present. I've saved you. I've rescued you. I'm sending you out on a mission. You've got a goal. I've set you up for success. And what he expects, he does not find. And this becomes the story. If you read the Old Testament, you are going to get so sick of God's people because they constantly fail, just like we do. And it gets to a point where God has to step in and say, okay, you need to face some consequences for your failure. I'm going to tear down the walls that I built around this vineyard, and you're going to feel the consequences. And that gets to our final major movement in the Old Testament, and that is exile. That when you read the prophets, some of the early ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you have these characters who are called by God to go and tell his people, warn them, in hopes that they would change their ways. said, you're following after other gods. You're completely disregarding that God is here with us. And you'd rather go chase these other gods who didn't save you, who haven't done a thing for you. And you're creating wickedness in the land. You're doing evil things to your brothers and sisters. Change your ways. And if you don't, we're going to get out of this land. God is going to allow our enemies to overtake us and exile us. The walls around the vineyard are going to come down. And I think this part of the exile, this move moment when Assyria and then later Babylon come and take over God's people and exile them to a different land away from the promised land. I think within that, it gets to our final potential obstacle misunderstanding when it comes to the Old Testament is that we love talking, and it's so good, we love talking about our relationship between us and God, and that is so good. It's so true that that is the beauty of our faith. But God cares so much about our relationship with one another, the human-to-human reconciliation. 
the oneness that is lost there, the way in which we see each other as other. That so much of what God is is, uh, judging the people for in these accounts with the prophets is not their failure to do the religious things. It's not their failure to care about their relationship with God, though they do fail in that as well. But he talks so much more about their failure to, to be united with other humans and their disconnect there. This is from Amos chapter 5, verse 21 through 24. God says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice your peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. What God says is, look, I know I gave you laws about religious festivals and burnt offerings, and those are there to remind you of the sanctity of God existing with us. And they're supposed to point us back to God and point us towards our brothers and sisters. But if if they're not doing that, then be done with them. I care more about justice and righteous living. That they could sing all the worship songs to him and God would plug his ears and say, no, I don't care. We have other moments too in Isaiah 58 when the people talk about fasting all the time and, and God says, you know what's real fasting? Helping those who are oppressed. That's the fasting I care about. Over and over again, we are told that this is what God desires. And things like Psalm 40 and Psalm 51, it talks about this idea that um, God doesn't really need the sacrifices. What he wants is a true obedience, a repentant heart. The sacrifices were important, but they were supposed to always lead to a, a real level of obedience to God and his character and righteous living in the land. And the people failed to do that. They failed to do that with one another. They were so divided. They lived wickedly and, and did not see each other as one, but only as other. So the people are exiled. And then we get a later point in the story in books like Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, where the people do get to return back to their land. There's a new ruler. There's the Persians. They take over the Babylonians. And, and they're able to go back to the land that they once lived in. So it feels like, okay, the exile's over. We're back. But if you read Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets that are around that time, known as the, the post-exilic prophets, just the prophets after the exile, when they get back in the land, there's this sense that this isn't really, this doesn't feel as, as great of a moment as we thought it was going to be. This is from Nehemiah 9. The people pray this long prayer. In fact, I would encourage you, if you wanted a great summary of the Old Testament, read all of Nehemiah 9. It is an excellent summary of the Old Testament. But at the end there, uh, the people cry out while they're in the land. They say, behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. So even though the people are back in the land, it seems like the exile is over. There's still this sense that we're still kind of in exile. 
We're still waiting for, for something else. This doesn't feel like a grand return back. This doesn't quite feel like the Exodus again. Something's missing. The people even begin to rebuild the temple. And those who were called the first temple look at the new one and say, eh, it's not as great. And we actually get no account of God's presence dwelling within that new temple. It's almost just there as a mark of disappointment. And this is where the Old Testament leaves us. It leaves the people wanting those two things that we previously talked about, Exodus and Emmanuel. When you read the prophets, you get this idea that scholars like to call the new Exodus. The prophets will look back on the Exodus and ask for God to do that again. And when they give words of hope, like Isaiah 40, when it talks about, you know, you will fly on eagle's wings, a verse that probably a lot of us might have up in our, up in our house. But that's a call back to what God did in the Exodus, that you were rescued on eagle's wings. That they hoped for God to step in and really free them again. That this is their hope. And so when Jesus steps in to his time and, and John calls him the Lamb of God, and when Jesus goes again, like I said, on the cross on Passover, it is this calling to new exodus. It's what the people want. But they were so focused on being freed from just human captors, right? Whether it was Persia or Greek or Rome. But God is more interested in freeing them from the real thing that holds over us, sin and death. The people longed for new exodus. And the last thing they longed for was Emmanuel. For God to be really with them. The tabernacle and the tent, they were great. But not everyone could go in there. And it was just a small little either tent or building. They longed for the day that God, as Joel said, would pour out his spirit on all his people. That God's temple presence would dwell in all of his people. They longed for that day. This is how the Old Testament leaves us. Looking at this problem that says we are really bad at seeing each other as one. That there are so many things even today that divide us. That make us look at the person that sits next to us and immediately come up with reasons why we don't like them and why we don't want to talk to them. But the Old Testament is this grand story of God trying to reunite that. Bring us back together. That he's going to rescue us not just from slavery, but from sin and death. These things that are there that divide us. That by removing them, we can be united to each other and back together with God. And Emmanuel, this idea here that God so desires, he is doing everything he can to be in his creation. Tabernacle, temple, and eventually Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit now dwelling in all of us who follow Jesus. Emmanuel, existing within us. We know as, as people follow Jesus that these hopes in the New Testament are true and have become real because of Jesus. My hope is that for us to go back and read the Old Testament, that you feel more confident to do so and see this grand story of redemption, that God is the same. That he loves and cares about his people, that he will step in and rescue them and free them. That God calls us to obedience. That God desires to be with us. And he desires for us to be united together. 
Those realities may not have been perfected in the Old Testament. And we're still waiting for a couple of those to be perfected. We're waiting for God to come back and bring new creation. We exist in this middle area where we know these truths are real. And God is calling us to obedience, calling us to be reunited to one another. He's expecting a crop of justice and expecting to find righteousness. And as God's people, are we going to bring oppression and violence or are we going to bring oneness again? That's the call of the Old Testament. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the scriptures. Lord, I thank you for their challenges. They force us to slow down and think and ponder and meditate and consider your ways. Lord, I pray for each person here in this room that you would give us the confidence to approach your scripture, the confidence that your Holy Spirit is dwelling within us, revealing truths to us as we read. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is consistent. Thank you that you are the same God today as you were yesterday, as you were 10,000 years ago, and as you will be 10,000 years from now. We thank you for what you have done in Jesus. All these hopes and longings of the Old Testament. Lord, there are still moments like those that we long and hope for. We know that one day they will be fully realized, that hope. God, we love you. We ask that you would work in us this week to bring barriers down, to be reunited with brothers and sisters, be reunited with you. We love you. In your name that we pray. Amen.